Jackie's Last Days by Edward Klein. The untold story of an incredible farewell. How Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis remained herself until the end. A private woman leading a very public life with grace and style. The beginning of the end was a fall from a horse. Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis was an expert rider and her accident shocked those who saw her plunge over her mount's head after he tripped on a stone wall. What no one at Virginia's Piedmont Foxhounds Hunt Club knew on that autumn day in 1993 was that Jackie was probably in no condition to ride. The fall led to doctor's visits and two months later she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer of the lymphatic system. She fought the disease, confident she would beat it. At 64, her life had never been better. She was happy in her relationship with diamond merchant Maurice Templesman, also 64. She was close to her children, Caroline Kennedy Schlossberg, 36, and John F. Kennedy Jr., 33. Her three grandchildren were the lights of her life, and she had a fulfilling job as a book editor. It was inconceivable that it could all be snatched away. But after four months of treatment, the news was bad. The cancer had spread to the membranes around her spinal cord and brain. Still, she battled on. One of the world's most beautiful women was now frail, stooped and balding, yet she refused to hide away. She submitted to the usual invasion of photographers as she set out from her New York apartment on walks with Templesman. Newspapers began writing what amounted to pre-obituaries, looking at her role in history. Although she once shone in the reflected light of her two powerful husbands, John F. Kennedy and Aristotle Onassis, in time she had acquired her own brilliant luminescence. Her contributions to American art and historic preservation were boundless, and in her choice to become a single working mother when she could have lived a life of luxurious ease, she set an example for millions of women who wanted a career but did not want to slight their families. For the moment, Jackie and those who loved her clung to hope. April 14, 1994, was sunny and warm. Marta Scubin, Jackie's longtime Italian housekeeper, threw open the windows. Jackie sat in the library of her New York apartment, making phone calls and enjoying the fragrant spring breeze that wafted through the room. Then suddenly and without warning, she collapsed. Jackie was rushed to hospital, where surgeons operated on a perforated ulcer, a complication of the powerful steroids with which the doctors had been attempting to treat the spread of her cancer. To Jackie, who had endured so much over the past few months, the painful stomach surgery was the last blow. When she came out of hospital in late April, her attitude had changed. She seemed to accept the inevitability of what was to come. She told Maurice that, while she still had the mental capacity, she wanted to write notes to her children, to be opened after her death. Maurice helped her sit up in bed. He brought Jackie her Robin's egg blue stationery and a vintage black and gold trimmed French fountain pen, which had belonged to her late father. As she began to write, her loping girls' school handwriting degenerated into a messy, almost illegible scrawl. Dear John... I understand the pressure you'll forever have to endure as a Kennedy, even though we brought you into this world as an innocent. You, especially, have a place in history. No matter what course in life you choose, all I can ask is that you and Caroline continue to make me 
the Kennedy family and yourself proud. Stay loyal to those who love you, especially Maurice. He's a decent man with an abundance of common sense. You will do well to seek his advice. Love, Mummy. John had been a concern to Jackie for some time. He seemed at loose ends, both personally and professionally. Maurice advised her not to interfere in her son's life, and Jackie agreed that it was always unwise for a mother to try to tell her adult son what to do. But she had not followed her own advice. Over Maurice's objections, she had prevented John from pursuing a career as an actor, even though that was what he was clearly cut out to be. Instead, she had persuaded him to go to law school, and after he graduated, she urged him to join the district attorney's office in Manhattan. When he quit that job to pursue a different dream, starting his own magazine, Jackie was sorely disappointed. John's girlfriend, Daryl Hannah, also created dissension between mother and son. Jackie did not actively dislike Daryl, but on the occasions when John brought her to the New York apartment for dinner, Jackie usually stayed in her bedroom and ate alone from a tray. Unbeknown to his mother, however, John was no longer seeing Daryl Hannah exclusively. He had fallen in love with a stunning, 182-centimetre-tall blonde named Carolyn Bassett. He suspected that she would not be his mother's cup of tea any more than Daryl Hannah was. Caroline shared none of his mother's cultural interests, in literature, ballet and the arts. She was into fashion and style. She did recreational drugs and gave off exciting vibes, edgy and dangerous. Jackie was very vocal in her disapproval of one of John's loves, flying. She begged him to promise that he would never fly his own plane. After all, she reminded him, his Kennedy relatives had been dying in plane crashes at the rate of one every eight years for the past 50 years. Please don't do it, Jackie had begged him. Please promise. I promise, John assured his mother. But he was, in fact, taking flying lessons and in order to keep his pursuits secret from his mother, he had obtained flight insurance through the Kennedy family business office rather than through Jackie's broker. His promise to her was a falsehood, motivated by the desire of a loving son to set his mother's mind at rest. Jackie next wrote to her daughter. Once a pudgy, frumpy teenager, Caroline had turned out to be a thin, attractive woman. She was married to Edwin Schlossberg, a man 13 years her senior. They had three children, Rose, five, Tatiana, three, and an infant son, John, nicknamed Jack. Caroline had chosen to live an extremely secluded, almost reclusive life. Having been the target of several stalker scares over the years, she was rarely seen in public and, with her husband, was equally protective of her children. Once a week, Caroline and her nannies took the three children to Jackie's apartment to play with Grand Jackie. With her flagrant imagination, Nancy Tuckerman, Jackie's friend, confidant and spokeswoman once said, she was able to hold their attention for hours on end. Jackie would take them on a fantasy adventure. She'd weave a spellbinding tale while leading them through the darkened apartment, opening closet doors in search of ghosts and mysterious creatures. Now, Jackie wrote... Dear Caroline, the children have been a wonderful gift to me and I'm thankful to have once again seen our world through their eyes. They restore my faith in the family's future. You and Ed have been so wonderful to share them with me so unselfishly. Love, Mummy. The doctors who had promised that Jackie would experience no pain turned out to be wrong. 
she suffered from pounding headaches, the result of her brain cancer. As a side effect of the steroids, which lowered her resistance to infection, she contracted pneumonia, making every breath agony. The morphine dripping into her veins nauseated her, and then there was the terrible mental anguish of knowing that waves of malignant cells were dividing inside her body. The burden of living was becoming too much. Caroline and John tearfully begged her to fight on, not to give up. Since their father's death, there had been just the three of them, an unbreakable trinity. They could not imagine life without one another, especially without their mother. They pleaded with her to take more antibiotics to combat the pneumonia. Then there was more devastating news. The cancer had spread to Jackie's liver. She was in hospital when she learnt this. Caroline was sitting beside Jackie's bed holding her hand, said a member of the hospital staff who was in the room. John was standing on the other side of the bed, stroking his mother's forehead. When the doctor broke the news, there was stunned silence. Then Jackie sighed deeply in resignation. Caroline cried out, Oh my God, no, and burst into tears. She cradled her mother in her arms, and Jackie began crying too. John walked over to Maurice and Ed Schlossberg, who had been standing at the foot of the bed, and the three men put their arms around each other. Dr Anne Moore, the eminent cancer specialist who had been treating Jackie, said, Let's try more chemotherapy. No, no, Jackie said. I want to go home to die. Over the strenuous objections of both family and doctors, Jackie discharged herself from New York Hospital Cornell Medical Centre early on the afternoon of Wednesday, May 18. It was a damp day. Maurice held her hand as the ambulance headed for her apartment. You're a good and loving man, and you've made these years so wonderful, Jackie told him. I will always be with you in spirit. I love you. Now let me rest. I feel so tired. Jackie had always been conscious of her place on the stage of history, and once she arrived back at her apartment, she prepared for her farewell performance. Characteristically, her response to death was the same as it was to life, aesthetic rather than rational. She aspired to make her death nothing less than a small masterpiece. Such an end required a great deal of preparation. When she first learned that the cancer had spread, Jackie had begun preparing everything for this moment. She had reviewed her living will, which stated that doctors were not to use extraordinary measures to keep her alive. She left the bulk of her estate, worth nearly $266 million, in a trust that would give an annual amount to charities, preferably those committed to making a difference in the cultural or social betterment of mankind or the relief of human suffering. After 24 years, the assets would pass to her grandchildren. She directed John and Caroline to help maintain in death the privacy that she had so fiercely guarded. To this end, shortly after Easter, she had summoned Nancy Tuckerman to her apartment. When Nancy entered the library, she found Jackie curled up on a sofa in front of a roaring fire, surrounded by her books and music. On the table beside her were stacks of letters, neatly tied with ribbons, representing a lifetime of personal correspondence. Jackie tugged at the end of one of the ribbons, and a letter fell onto the coverlet arranged over her lap. The letter was nearly 40 years old, and the paper on which it was written was brittle. Jackie began to read it aloud to Nancy. Dear Jax. Jax was the nickname bestowed on her as a child by her father, the roguish Black Jack Bouvier, who was the archetype of all the men Jackie had fallen in love with. 
Her father's letter was tender and personal, and when she finished reading it, Jackie tossed it into the fire. She picked up another letter, read it out loud, then consigned it to the flames. One by one, she chose which letters to save and which to incinerate. She had a reverence for history, but she also had to decide just how much she wanted to reveal about herself when she died, which was not very much. During her life, practically every man who had met Jackie fell under her spell, and many of them had written her indiscreet letters. There was, for instance, a passionate letter dating from the 1950s from the writer John Marquand, Jackie's first great love. It went into the fire. And there was another from a foreign naval attaché in Washington during the Kennedy administration. At the time, there had been rumours that Jackie and the dashing admiral were carrying on an affair. Jackie wanted the truth to remain her secret. The letter followed the others into the fire. And there was a letter from John Carl Warnecke, the brilliant architect who designed President Kennedy's gravesite at Arlington National Cemetery. A few months earlier, Warnecke, who was now in his mid-70s, had read in a newspaper about Jackie's battle against cancer and he had sent her a Valentine's Day card. I still love you, he wrote. Into the fire. Now, as the end approached, Caroline helped her mother make a list of close friends and family members who would be permitted to enter her bedroom to say their last goodbyes. Maurice arranged for round-the-clock nurses and a morphine drip that Jackie could control. Jackie went over all the details of her funeral. She told her children and Maurice that she had considered having her body cremated and her ashes scattered so that people couldn't turn her gravesite into a garish tourist attraction. But ultimately she decided against that, choosing instead to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery next to Jack Kennedy. I was the president's wife, she explained, and the country would expect me to be buried there. I can't escape that responsibility. The funeral would be held at the Church of St Ignatius Loyola at Park Avenue and 84th Street, where Jackie had been baptised as an infant and confirmed at the age of 11. It was difficult for her to concentrate on these details. With the help of the ever-faithful martyr, Jackie gathered her last bit of strength and chose a set of her favourite floral sheets for her deathbed. She picked out a nightgown and a scarf to cover her head, totally bald from chemotherapy. And finally, she selected the Gregorian chant, Alleluia, Beatus Virgi Safet, Blessed is the man who endures, that would accompany the closing moments of her life. That afternoon, May 18, Jackie's old friend Bunny Mellon arrived. She was greeted at the door by Maurice, who was unshaven and looked as though he had not slept in days. He had practically given up his diamond business to stay near Jackie and take care of her. On the way back to Jackie's bedroom, Bunny saw Caroline in her old childhood room. She lay on the bed, fully dressed, her eyes closed, crying. Bunny did not disturb her. She knocked softly on Jackie's door, then entered. The walls were pale lime green. Jackie was propped up in a beautiful coral red canopy bed. Books were everywhere. The only other person in the room was a nurse who monitored the morphine drip. Bunny sat next to Jackie and took her hand. She leaned over and whispered to Jackie in such a low voice that the nurse could not hear what she said. After a while, Bunny got up and lit some candles and then went out of the room to help with the final arrangements. Bunny suggested to John, who was wandering aimlessly around the living room and library, that he order food from a caterer. Then she went to find Marta 
and asked her to phone a few of Jackie's closest friends and invite them to come as soon as possible. As soon as singer Carly Simon got the call, she rushed to Jackie's building. When she arrived, thousands of people had gathered in the street in front of 1045th Avenue. The police had not had time to set up barricades. People spilled off the footpaths on both sides of the street. Red double-decker tourist buses went by every few minutes, loudspeakers blaring the announcement that they were passing the residence of former First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. It was a circus. Traffic came to a standstill. Rubberneckers tried to see what was going on. Television cameras captured the whole hysterical scene and broadcast it around the world. Upstairs, John welcomed the visitors as they stepped out of the lift into Jackie's foyer. Caroline was too distraught to talk. Family members, Lawfords, Kennedys and Shrivers, roamed through the apartment, which was filled with the sounds of the Gregorian chant. Except for Maurice and John and some other male members of the family, said Carly, only women were being allowed in the bedroom. One of Jackie's last wishes had been that none but a few women friends outside the family be permitted to see her at her time of dying. Carly entered the room. Bunny was sitting on a chair by the bed, holding Jackie's hand. Carly exchanged places with Bunny. Jackie was unconscious, Carly recalled. She had a print scarf over her head. In repose, her face was completely smooth and translucent. Her mouth was slightly open, and there was the sound of a delicate exhalation. During the time I was sitting with Jackie and holding her hand, Carly went on, I felt as though I had a direct communication with her an experience that was deep, personal and untainted by self-consciousness. Throughout the night of May 18, Caroline, John, Maurice and Bunny took turns at Jackie's bedside. They read passages aloud from her favourite poets, Robert Frost, Emily Dickinson and Edna St Vincent Millay. From time to time, Jackie was aware of the presence of others in the dimly lit room. She looked up at Caroline's and John's faces which were lined with grief and lack of sleep. It's late, she whispered. Go home and get some sleep. When she awoke in the morning, Jackie summoned her priest, Monsignor George Bardes, to give her the last rites. Caroline and John wanted to put off the holy anointing until later, the priest said. They didn't want to accept that these were their mother's final hours. But Jackie faced that truth squarely. It was a little past eleven when Monsignor Bardes entered her bedroom and administered the sacrament of extreme unction. Then he leaned his ear close to Jackie's lips and heard her last confession. As the hours went by, family members filed into the room two by two. Among them were Ethel Kennedy and Pat Kennedy Lawford, Eunice and Sergeant Shriver, Jean Kennedy Smith and her son William Kennedy Smith. In the evening, just before Jackie slipped into a final coma, Ted Kennedy entered the chamber. Ted knelt by her bedside, said a family member who was present. He told Jackie, I know there have been times you've been disappointed in me. But before he could go any further, Jackie held up a hand and stopped him. She said, Ted, you always did your best to hold this family together, and I've always respected you for that. What I want is for you to enjoy the rest of your life with Victoria, Ted Kennedy's second wife. Ted was too overcome to speak. He just nodded his head gave her a hug and left the room in tears. Shortly after 10.15 in the evening of May 19, John, Caroline, Maurice and Bunny emerged from Jackie's bedroom. 
Mother's dead, John announced to the other members of the family. She passed away peacefully. She just slipped away. Ted Kennedy suggested that someone go downstairs and issue a statement to the press. Caroline bristled. We don't owe them anything, she said, full of bitterness over the circus of a death watch outside the building. But cooler heads prevailed. The next morning, May 20, John, dressed in an impeccably tailored navy blue suit, emerged from the lobby of 1045th Avenue. Last night, at around 10.15, my mother passed on, he said. She was surrounded by her friends and family and her books and the people and things that she loved. And she did it in her own way and on her own terms. And we all feel lucky for that. And now she's in God's hands. Death spared Jackie the anguish of learning that John perished in a plane crash. In that sense, death did her a great favour. But long after she succumbed to her disease, many of her admirers around the world still found it hard to believe she was gone. She was supposed to go on forever, an icon who taught us how to live. She was not supposed to teach us how to die. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price. Thank you.